I'm nervously excited about sharing God's Word with you today. <laughs> and I'll tell you why here in, in just a second. Um, hi, baby. It's nice to see you, too. Uh, last night, I was up working and completing my sermon, uh, and I crawled into bed, and I placed my head down on my pillow, and immediately the Lord kind of said, okay, we're going to do something else with what you studied and wrote with last night, and he gave me a whole new direction for this sermon, and I said, okay, I'll see you in the morning, and I, I went to sleep. <laughs> um, so, But I really feel excited about sharing uh, what I have to share, because the bulk of what I wrote and the bulk of what I uh, put down in my notes is certainly going to help guide and shape, because uh, this kind of thing doesn't typically happen to me. I really feel typically in my preparation time, I always feel like the prompting or the leading of the Holy Spirit in one direction, and I run that direction, and the Lord kind of, he tweaks it, he confirms it, and we, we move in a direction, and, and it's there. Uh, but very rarely do I have these kind of experiences to where the Lord kind of just totally redirects me. And so this morning, I'm excited because I have to really, really, really depend upon him, which means this is going to be all Jesus. And actually, that will be even a great illustration for kind of what we're going to talk about today. Um, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can grab them and open them up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to read um, the first 16 verses. So if you, if you get our weekly email, we have a weekly email that goes out, and so if you don't get that, uh, fill out a connection card, give us your email, we'll, we'll definitely include you in that email. It goes out every Fridays, and typically on uh, Friday, we not only tell you the, the sermon topic and the passage that we're going to preach from, we kind of give you a, a highlight of the, the songs. There's even a link there so you can prepare your voice or your heart for the worship as we gather on Sundays, and so it's also a great way to know what's going on in the church. Um, so you, if you saw this past Friday's um, uh, email, the, the message is going to be completely different, retitled, retitled. The text is the same. The, the base of where we're launching from is the same, but the, the whole message is just going to be totally different, all right? Um, but we're going to read uh, the first 16 verses in just a minute, but I want to kind of begin with us um, just kind of examining and thinking and asking a question here this morning. I typically like to do that as I, as I prepare our hearts to kind of receive what God has for us. Um, but a lot has been going through, I think, the whole city's mind in regards to this idea of legacy, especially in light of the passing of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, right? Like, what kind of legacy did Kobe Bryant leave behind? Um, if you followed Kobe Bryant for a long time, um, I always, I mean, I remember when he was drafted. I actually remember, how many of you guys are old enough to remember a guy named Michael Thompson that played for the Los Angeles Lakers in the 80s? All right, there's a few of us. A few of us OGs with gray beards that remember Michael Thompson. Michael Thompson was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's backup, just to let you know, during the, the glory days of the run-and-gun Lakers. And Michael Thompson, I can remember him talking about Kobe Bryant when he was young and, and Shaq when they were in, before they were ever in the league. I mean, that guy was in touch with kind of like the up-and-coming recruits. And so I, I followed Kobe Bryant. Plus, Kobe Bryant is like a couple months or was a couple months older than my brother. So he just passed away. He was 41. My brother is 41 and so I remember very fondly him entering the league and Kobe Bryant's career kind of had a, an up a real high start at the beginning he had a little dip as you know with kind of the controversy surrounding some of the allegations made to him but then he kind of just kind of reimagined himself and especially after his playing career he really began to and, and then maybe in the closing days and the more and more I've read is like he did a lot of this stuff undercover but how he was really investing in people in the community and he was interested in having a legacy that went beyond 
um, his basketball career. And he certainly left a great legacy uh, on the court, but he was interested in having a legacy as a father and as a generous, uh, community-minded person. And I think that's something that's innate within most, or I think all people, uh, that there's this desire to leave something behind. Because all of us at some point or another, even the youngest of us, recognize that there will be an end to our lives. Whether it's at 41 like Kobe or whether it's at 101, there is an end to our existence. And there's this part uh, of, our, of our humanity that desires to be remembered. So maybe it's selfish, maybe it's driven by ego, or maybe it's this, um, this thing, this, this characteristic that God places within us to leave a lasting mark on the world, or at least the world that, that we are a part of, like our family and whatnot. Um, there is a verse that I want to read that kind of, I think, sheds a little spiritual insight to this. It's not in 1 Corinthians, and you can just jot this down. You can look it up later. But it's from Matthew chapter uh, 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' teaching uh, is so rich and deep in, in this particular area. But just one area that I want to point out, in verse 19, it says, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think in that particular verse and in that, um, in that passage, Jesus is speaking to that part of us that desires to leave a lasting mark um, that goes beyond our lives and our existence here on earth. And um, he also is speaking to the motive that drives that in us. It's like he's saying, hey, look, what are you really wanting to invest in? What are you really wanting to pour yourselves into? Is it something that is temporal, that will be here and it might be flashy and big and important, but then when it's gone and you're gone, that it's vastly forgotten? Or is it something that, is indelible that will last for eternity. And maybe other people might forget, but in the eyes of God, it will be remembered. And um, I think that's something that we all um, resonate with, and I think um, we struggle with how we're going to do that. For some of us, we pour into our children, if we have children, and we hope that they remember us and they remember the type of person that we are, that we were a good mother or a good father. Or if we don't have children, if we're, if we're married or have a significant other, that they, when, when we're gone, will think of us and remember us fondly. Like, it's like, who will come to my funeral and say good things and not be a liar, right? <laughs> or who will, you know, read my obituary and go, that really was, uh, I didn't know that this person really did all those things, right? Like, I've learned a lot about Kobe Bryant. I thought I knew a lot about him, but I, I learned a lot more about him in his passing. And so what type of legacy are we leaving or what kind of uh, memories are we leaving? And not just for other people, but truly what type of eternal legacy are we leaving? And so in light of that context, I want us to read um, second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And you, we're going to read this passage. And you're going to be like, that has nothing to do with what you're saying, Josh. But I'll tie it all together here in the end. And I hope to go uh, not too long this morning. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to read for you from the NIV the first 16 verses, and so uh, if you want to follow along, you can. Um, 
When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct us, but we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truths and the realities that are contained within it. But Lord, I pray that we would move beyond just um, an intellectual awareness of your truth, but Lord, your Holy Spirit might um, reveal Christ to us today. Let revelation come by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a lot going on in this passage, a ton. And actually, as I was reading over this text um, throughout the week, and actually even started uh, the week before, um, just reading in this particular passage, um, I was really kind of like at first excited about where I thought this message was going to go. Originally, I had like the number one, like, like, and this is how it always starts with me. I have this like one idea that I think I'm going to go down. And as I study, the Lord usually directs it. So I'm never like surprised if it goes in a slightly different direction. And so I had this one idea. And the more and more that I studied this passage and did some research on it, I kept going, okay, how, how am I going to preach this passage? That not only is there a ton of truth and like a lot of backstory and culture here, how does it even apply to our lives today? And so then I thought, okay, I've got it. And so that's the direction I worked on all week long and that I wrote last night, yesterday and last night, and the Lord decided to hijack this morning for me. Um, but there's so much deep, rich truth in there that I feel like I could, I could honestly share like 10 sermons out of this entire passage and we could go on it for weeks. 
but there is something behind in the backstory and in the culture of what's going on in, in the kind of the, the subcontext of what's going on here in Corinth at this time that kind of really sheds some light onto what Paul's doing, what he's saying, and why it's important not only for that church there, but also for this church today here in Santa Monica. So I want to set a little bit of backtrack up of what was going on in Corinth. So first of all, Corinth is a unique city in the Roman Empire. It had been actually an established and significant city in the Greek Empire. And they had predated the Roman Empire, led by Alexander the Great. And Corinth, because of its geographic location, was significant for military, political reasons. It sat on an isthmus. Did I say that right? Isthmus? In Ismith, it's this piece of land that actually narrows to where essentially you've got a bay on each side of water and then it widens again. So it's kind of like um, a very thin strip of land. And so because of that, and also it's, um, it's um, um, proximity to both the Mediterranean Sea and also like what's going into Europe, it kind of was this bridgeway between kind of the Mediterranean nations and instead of having to go all the way around what is now Greece, they could kind of just go there, basically take stuff across to the other side and get on a boat and go that way and save tons and tons of time. So it was a big port city, and we know living like in Los Angeles is in a port city. It's um, typically um, a, a city of commerce and industry. Um, typically, port cities throughout the history of the world, and Corinth was no exception, in ancient times was a city um, that was very diverse. So people from all over the Roman Empire lived there. Um, there were people from all different ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, social backgrounds. So it was a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan community. And in that type of city, um, you had a divergent, uh, uh, like this convergence of ideas and philosophies and religions and people groups. So it's really, like if you think about it, like a, a San Francisco, like an LA, like a New York, uh, big port cities that are very international, multicultural communities. And when um, you enter into a community like this and you live in a city that is um, multicultural and has a lot of different, uh, and these are things we all know, right? There, there's a convergence of these ideas and there's, there's a lot of, um, of, how would I say this, like influence that each culture and each religion has on each other. So like here, in, uh, like, I think of like the perfect example in LA is Kogi food trucks, right? Like it's this convergence of Korean food and Mexican food, boom. But that, that only happens when you have a bunch of Koreans and a bunch of Mexicans together and they start eating each other's food and go, oh, I like this, but what if I did it with my spices and my, my meats? And then the other, the other, so like there's this convergence and this fusion that takes place. And so that happens not just with food and with culture, but I guess food is part of culture, but so is like religion and faith. And so you have this hodgepodge of religious ideas that are circulating in this community. And this is a community that the Apostle Paul comes into. And he begins to share the gospel and people get saved. And it's like there's this significant move of God in this community. And he ends up staying there for 18 months. So he starts essentially the church of Corinth. And he stays there for 18 months and he builds it up. And when he feels like it's time to go and get out and, and then start onto the next community that God's calling him to, he, you know, we, we believe that he's raised up enough leaders. He still has a heart and a passion for this community, but he's raised up people to carry on the ministry and the work of God until he carries on his ministry and he goes. But very quickly after he leaves, he learns about some issues that are going on in Corinth. And so he writes them a letter. And believe it or not, it's not 1 Corinthians. It's actually a, a letter that we don't even have anymore. It was probably, we could call it zero Corinthians, all right, because it predates 1 Corinthians. So that letter's been lost. We don't have it. But 
what we do know, because it's referenced here in 1 Corinthians, is what we do know is that when they received his letter, they were kind of confused by his letter. They, were, they wanted greater clarification on what Paul was trying to teach them. Um, and so they wrote him a letter back, and they said, hey, explain this more, and, so, and help us out here, because there was this big debate on how to apply that and whether Paul, there actually was now some questioning on whether they should actually listen to Paul. Um, was he really somebody of authority? And so this is where 1 Corinthians comes in. So Paul now writes 1 Corinthians. It's the response to their response to his letter. You following me? So really, 1 Corinthians is like 2 Corinthians, if you're following me, all right? Am I confusing you? Okay, good. I feel like I'm confusing myself. All right, so in this letter, the, one of the major issues that Paul is correcting within the church that he tried to correct before, but they're still not getting, is this divisiveness that has overtaken the church. So Paul comes in and he starts the church, and actually when he's there, there's other leaders that are with him that are on this mission. It's like an, almost like an all-star team of missionaries that are in there starting this church, and then they're gone. And the church continues on, but there's now other influences that have started to kind of creep in, and a lot of these influences are from the culture. So one of the big things that was a part of all um, Greek and Roman culture, but in Corinth in particular, and especially at this time, um, there was this great value on rhetoric, being able to stand up and give a speech and convince people through emotion or through intellect. Um, and um, it was kind of like predate. So like, you got to think about it. There's no entertainment at this time. There's a little bit of uh, theater that's going on at this time in, in the Roman culture. But there's no television. There's no radio. There's no Netflix. None of that stuff is going on. And so people would gather into public places for like sports or, you know, to see these gladiators battle it out or chariots to race around. Or what they do is they'd go hear one of these people. They call them sophists, if you want to know the, the technical term, who would come in and would be orators. They would come and they would give these um, emotional or um, dramatic speeches and to the cheers of the people. They would come in and they would draw crowds. They were like many celebrities. So think of your favorite Instagram star. I don't know who. And they came. But think about how people respond to celebrity today. That's exactly how these people would respond to these orators these sophists. They would come in, and what they do, they did this for a living, and they were actually itinerant teachers or itinerant even um, speech givers. Like, that would be the best way to, because what was crit critical about them in this particular time to understand is that the content of what they said wasn't even really that important. What people were most impressed with was the way in which they presented their speeches and their material. Oftentimes, they were very dramatic, um, great speakers um, with uh, a lot of flair and drama, uh, and they were skilled in that way, and they would entertain, but the content was always, like, lacking. But that's, people didn't care about that. They just wanted, essentially, to be entertained. And so that culture of these traveling teachers, these traveling sophists who would come in and give speeches, it was part of the culture, and it was highly valued. Actually, to be associated with one of these people was like a, um, a point of pride. And so these guys would come into town, and they'd go into a public place, and they'd give a speech. And they'd draw a crowd, and people would be cheering and, and yelling and supporting them. And the whole hopes was that somebody of significance in that community, whether that be a political leader or somebody else that has influence in that community, would invite them over to their house, host a big dinner in their honor, and then eventually pay them. Because this is how they survived. This is how they made their living, as they would go from t city to city, town to town, village to village, being invited in by the wealthy people of the community and giving some money. Uh, hopefully to just kind of carry on what they're doing. 
And this um, high value in the culture of the way in which a speech was given um, was so significant and so infiltrated the church, it actually began to impact the way this church was viewing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul had come in and preached the gospel and had led them to faith. And after he left, there's this guy named Apollos, all right? And Apollos is referenced in Acts, and he's also referenced here in Corinth. He's actually one of the guys that people started breaking off into divisions. So people in the church were saying, hey, I'm of Paul. I'm one of Paul's disciples. And one of the other groups would say, no, 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 we're, we're of Apollos. Paul is nothing. Apollos is great. And there was another group that say, no, 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 we're of Peter. He was one of the apostles' right-hand men. We're, we're and then others would say, no, 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 you, you terrible people, we're of Christ. And so each one was using the person that they identified with most to cause division. Even the people that were saying we're of Christ were actually causing division, basically saying we're the in crowd and you guys are on the outs. And the great consensus was that the, the two main camps, they were, there were all four of them in this particular church in Corinth, but the two main camps were people that were saying they were of Apollos and people that were saying they were of Paul. And what's interesting is that everywhere we read about Apollos, when it's, he's uh, talked about in Scripture, he's talking about being an eloquent speaker. And there's some even debate, now we don't know this for sure, that before Apollos came to faith in Christ, he actually may have been one of these traveling sophists that went around, an itinerant speaker. And so he had these giftings within him and these developed skills within him to come in and share things. And so now, in addition to that, he had the gospel. So like the content of what he's saying, was, what he was saying was transformative. And so everything that Apollos did was not to cause division. He was actually just using his gifting and his ability to teach other people the ways of the Lord. He had actually been mentored by a couple that Paul had worked with in the past. You've heard about Aquila and Priscilla. They're sprinkled throughout the, the, the story in Acts. They had actually discipled him and taught him the ways of the Lord. And so he has this natural gifting and skill that he's developed. He's coming in and he's sharing Christ. And so people are starting to now value the teachings of Apollos in their minds, they're saying higher than Paul because to them, they had begun to use this influence of like the high value of, of rhetoric and speech. And so they were saying, hey, God's obviously, his hand is obviously upon Apollos. I mean, look at the way he presents the gospel. And there's over here Paul and every description we actually have of Paul, which this may blow your mind. It kind of really blew my mind as I studied it. Even Paul, by his own words, says he wasn't a great speaker. So here's Paul, who, and he says here at the very beginning, what does he say? When I came to you, brothers, in verse 1, I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So even Paul's acknowledging here that when I came, I didn't come with great eloquence. I didn't come with this wisdom. And wisdom was one of the themes that these sophists would talk about. What is wisdom? It was a very lofty ideal in Greek and Roman culture to be, what it talk about this idea of wisdom. And, and Paul's like, I didn't come to you with anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I presented Christ to you. He said, and I did this in order that the attention wouldn't be drawn to me and my abilities. So some argue, well, Paul had the ability to speak well, but he chose not to. Others argue that Paul just was a terrible speaker and he never would. He was a great writer and his letters are strong and they're rich in theology and conviction. But when he came up to speak, have you ever met somebody like that? They're better in an email than they are in person. Maybe that's you, okay? That, think about, your, you can identify with the Apostle Paul. Like, the pen is your weapon. Like, me, it's, it's my tongue. But when I, start, when I start typing, it's like, oh, 
typo after grammatical error, after typo after grammatical error, and then I give it to Kylie and say, will you prove this for me? All right, so we all have our strengths, right? And so some argued that was the case. Another interesting argument I thought was that Paul was actually a pretty eloquent speaker, better than he thought, but he suffered severely from stage fright. That he, you know, like he just, it overwhelmed him emotionally. So like he just thought he was doing terrible, even though he was doing a good job. But regardless of where we fall on like what Paul's issue was, the reality was is Paul was not dependent upon any gifting or ability that he had in communicating the gospel. It says clearly in this passage that he solely depended upon the Holy Spirit, right? So like, what does it say next? Like, so verse two says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's like, so I'm like, I'm taking all the fluff away from my messages. Because what you need to know is essentially this. Jesus died and it's in his crucifixion that we have life. It's in his death and his suffering that we have victory. And then he says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. So this is one of the verses that people often use to say, well, it's quite possible that he suffered from stage fright. Because he came in fear and trembling, right? Verse 4 says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul's heart and what drove his proclamation of the gospel, not just in Corinth, but everywhere he went, was that people would not look to him, not look to any other vessel that God might use, but they would look to God himself as the source of the truth, the rescue, and the transformation that they needed. That it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was him being crucified that should be proclaimed, not these lofty words or this eloquence. And, and it's so easy for those of us that are public preacher teachers to get into like sounding smart and eloquent and have these great revelations is look what God has given me and I'm going to pour my wisdom out on you and Paul's the opposite Paul's like look at how terrible I am essentially he's like here's my weakness before you here is who I am I'm coming to you in humility and in weakness and in fear and trembling but I the message I proclaim I proclaim boldly because it is not my message, but it is God's message that I carry. This begins to transform our understanding a lot when we think about not just the preaching of the gospel, which will take place on a Sunday morning, maybe in your church that you attend, right? But how we live our lives as followers of Christ. Because Paul wasn't sharing the importance of this just to like preachers and teachers. He was sharing it to a whole congregation. He wanted them to understand that their faith needed to be rooted in Jesus Christ, not in anybody's wisdom or sophistication or anybody's gifting and oratory skills. But their faith needed to be rooted truly on God's word, and the, it, it's authenticated or it's proved here, it says, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And this is what's important to understand, because we can read a ton of things into that, uh, but I want to talk about one thing that's so vital to understanding about the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Elsewhere throughout scriptures, we are taught by Christ and by Paul that no one essentially can proclaim Jesus as Lord without the Spirit giving them that, that revelation. Meaning that I can stand up here and be the best orator in the world and I can present to you the story of Jesus Christ, and I could present to you the option to convince you to follow Jesus Christ. 
But if the Holy Spirit is not involved in that process, not one of you will authentically proclaim Jesus as Lord. But anybody can come up here, being an average or sub-average person, and share the story of Jesus and how he's impacted their lives, humbly leaning upon their Lord and with the Holy Spirit's empowerment, the demonstration of the Spirit was the changed lives that had taken place. The lives that had now, like these were totally pagan people. These were people that had no God-bearing in their lives. The Gentiles of that day are a lot different than Gentiles of today, right? So today, Gentile just means not a Jew, right? And that's what it meant in Jesus' day as well, and in Paul's day. And then there's the Jews, all right? Jews had this framework built within their culture even the non-religious Jews, and even today this is the same. Jews have this framework within their culture of what God is, what God expects. Even if they don't follow it, they have an understanding of what it means to follow God. They may say, ah, that's not for me. I'm a non-religious Jew. Uh, and there were a lot of non-religious Jews in Jesus' day, too. They called them Hellenist uh, Jews. They were Jews that were more impressed with Greek culture than they were of their own. And so they kind of spoke Greek. They took on Greek names. Um, they took on Greek, uh, maybe not religion, but they just kind of abandoned their own culture and embraced the Greek culture. Um, and so um, the reality is these Jews, though, still had a framework for what it meant to follow God. Gentiles, on the other hand, in, in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, they had no framework. They didn't know what the Ten Commandments were. They didn't know the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't know the teachings in Leviticus and, and that reiterated by Jesus to love your neighbors. They didn't know these things at all. So when Paul comes into these villages and starts teaching in these towns, he starts teaching about Christ, it's totally revolutionizing everything they know. They're following the Greek and Roman gods. I mean, that's their framework. They're, they're worshiping all these other gods. There's a pantheon of gods that they, they would worship, and, and each village and town might have one of the gods that they identified with, but they, they worshiped them all, but one of them might be their village or their town god. And here comes Jesus, and here comes Paul proclaiming the one true God to these Gentiles, and it's revolutionizing the world. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit, to totally change a culture that's driven in an opposite direction of the things of God, and yet the Spirit comes in and it brings what we would call as conviction of the heart, the reality that this God and this message are true, and that I need to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is saying, is that this demonstration of God's power you guys have experienced you were people walking in the complete opposite direction of God, and now you've been walking with God. And so was it this, was it the words that I gave you that I gave humbly and that I wasn't even good at? Or was it the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power that brought the change? And that is what is at the heart of what he's talking about here. This is the heart behind the gospel, and this is the heart behind the life that's lived by the people of God, the people of the gospel, you and I. Because the preaching of the gospel takes place, yes, on a Sunday morning when we stand here and somebody comes up and, and speaks. But the living out of the gospel is what changes people's lives more so. As you and I walk Monday through Saturday to work, to the school, to the grocery store, wherever we go on our errands, as we sit in traffic, wherever we're at in this city, where God takes us, we are called to live out this gospel, this, this, the proof and the verification of the transforming work of God. And we could very easily be influenced by great orators and great pastors. And look, I'm not slamming any one of them, but the reality is, is what's gonna, you don't have to be one of them to make a difference in this world. 
Dwell Church doesn't have to be the most glorious, glamorous church in all of L.A. to make a huge, significant difference because it isn't about our own abilities, our own talents, our own oratory skills. It isn't about any of those things. What it's truly about is living a life that's focused and built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means, like, how, like, is it just your moral code that you're a Christian? Is that why you follow Jesus? Is it just because your family raised you in this? Or is it just because that's, in your mind, what makes you a good person? And those are all wonderful things to aspire to. But the gospel calls you to something greater, and it calls you to a life of self-sacrifice and service unto the king. There's no other way around it. And, and I, it's not, a, it's like so many, so many people want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus just because of the forgiveness of sins and the goal of being in heaven and not having to burn for eternity in hell. But the reality is Christianity and following Christ is so much more than that. And the cost is so much really greater, right? Like God doesn't call you to, to, um, to like, like give certain amounts of money all the time. Like there's no contingency. You don't have to come every Sunday to be a, a, a Christian, all these other different little things. But the things that God calls us to, to be followers of Jesus Christ are greater than that. He calls us to a life of self-denial. Like when our will gets in conflict with his, we submit our will to his. We're called to give up control of our lives and yield it to Jesus. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he's the master. He's the director. He's the orchestrator of my life. And I yield my will to his. Yes, God will never force me to do anything. But he's going to have a desire for my life. And he's going to have a desire for your life. And it's a desire that's going to bring us into the greatest intimacy with the creator, lover, giving, gracious, kind, blessed God that there is for all of us. And there is no greater, see, the greatest joy in our lives is honestly knowing him. It is. I mean, for, for the Christian, that's what happens is like, see, like the salvation moment when we confess that we're following Jesus, that's just the beginning. And for so many Christians, it becomes the sum of their entire walk with God. And that's just the very beginning of the relationship that God wants to start with you. That's just the very beginning of his revelation to you. He wants to bring you into deeper and greater revelations of who he is. Because honestly, the more you get a taste of him, the more you're going to want of him. He's like the best drug that it ever was. So I want to challenge all of us this morning. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. And they're going to lead us in one more song. And as they lead us in, in just a few moments, we're going to do two things. We're going to... We're going to invite you to respond to what God is speaking into your heart today. And that could be a multitude of ways. One of the ways, though, will be through uh, the communion elements. We have the Lord's table set up at two ends. Um, and how we receive communion here at Dwell is that you can just kind of go up at any time. Um, I encourage you to go up not alone with somebody with you, but go up if you're, if you're only one here by yourself. Grab somebody with you or just go. But take um, a bread Dip it into the, the juice there, and if you want to pray over it, uh, take some time just to kind of dwell on what you're doing, um, because this is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us, the sacrifice of his blood for us. So you can respond in that manner, or if you need prayer, or you need to talk, or you want to pray on your own, I want to encourage you to do that, or if it's just in singing with the worship team as they lead us, uh, but respond to what God may be speaking into your life today, and um, you know, I will certainly be available to, to talk or pray with you if needed. But I want to challenge us here as we close, as we move to um, this time of communion, this time of response.
there are areas in all of our lives where we feel confident. Especially the older you get, um, you become more confident in who you are, right? A lot of those, you still have insecurities and you still battle them. Young people, you'll battle insecurity your whole life. It's just, just reality. It's part of that brokenness of being disconnected from God. That's really what that is. When we're in right communion with God, that brings the greatest sense of security because it isn't built on any kind of performance that I have to say or do to be loved, but I understand that God has done everything and loves me. And that brings the greatest sense of assurance and confidence because it's not in ourself, it's in what Christ has done. But the older you get, you become more confident about life because you've made a lot of mistakes, you've learned, you've grown, you get more comfortable in your skin. And so there's areas in our lives where we're very, very confident. Oh, I can handle that now. Maybe when I was 19 or 20, I couldn't. But now that I'm, I'm 30 or 35, I can handle that now because I've learned and, I, and I've grown and I've matured and I've developed. Uh, and, and we all do that. So there's areas where we get very confident. But there's still areas in our lives where we're insecure. And for most people in the church, when it comes to living a confident and bold life for God, it scares the hell out of people. Because we think we're not good enough. That I don't know enough about God. That I haven't experienced God enough. I'm not close enough to God. I don't have the gifts of so-and-so. And we start comparing ourselves. It's like being a teenager all over again. And I don't mean this in a negative way of teenagers, but that's what happens is we revert to this place of insecurity. It's human nature. Don't beat yourself up for it. But I want all of us to grasp and understand this as individuals and as a community. We don't have to be the best at anything. We don't have to. And actually, God's not calling us to be the best at anything other than being the best at who we are. So this is why Paul embraces his insecurities or his weakness. He presents the gospel in the, in the, the, the midst of his greatest weakness. Whether it was just perceived on his end or a reality, he presented the gospel by speech in his greatest weakness. Why? In order that God might be glorified. That it would be seen and evident to all that it is a work of the Spirit that brings that type of change and transformation to other people. And so I say that to you as an individual. I don't know what God's asking of you. I, I'm not in your brain. God hasn't given me special knowledge. I don't know. But I know that what God is asking of you right now, however he's asking you to step out, you can do it. In the midst of your weakness, because this is really where um, faith is activated. Like if you do it in an area that you're confident, there's no, there's no faith required to do something in an area you're confident in. You do it based on your experience and your self-confidence and self-reliance. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if God's asking you to step out in an area of your weakness, if God's calling you and asking you to step out in an area where you're insecure, this is because he wants others to see that it's his spirit that is working through you to bring about the change. Don't let that buzzing distract you. Now let's think about it too for us as a community, as Dwell Church. God may be asking us to do some things that we're just not confident in. Like we can look at all the natural abilities and talents and resources that we have and go, well, we're limited. <sighs> but are we? I mean, is not the Spirit of God with us? 
Is not the gospel that we talk about, is not the Jesus that we proclaim still the same Jesus that has changed lives for years and years and years? People that aren't even remembered have been used by God to make the greatest differences in the world. Because it isn't about us being remembered as much as Christ being remembered. This is the lasting, eternal legacy that he calls us to. This is what it means to store our treasures up in heaven, to put everything that we value up into his kingdom, right? To entrust him to make the difference, for him to work through us in our greatest weaknesses, because it says in the scriptures, but it's in our weaknesses that he is made strong. And what that means is when we decide to operate in an area where we're weak and we're insecure and we're not confident, it allows God to be God and for us to get out of the way. Yes, there are certain people like Apollos, right? Like, these are, the, these are kind of like, he, Apollos is probably like the Francis Chan of his day, right? Think about it, right? Like, he's the dude that could speak eloquently and had all this charisma and would attract other leaders and people would just flock to him. But even he, he did it right because he pointed people to Christ. So some of, we may have like a super gifted person here that I, I just know you're hiding all these super gifts and talents and abilities and you're super confident and you're eloquent and you're, got everything that's awesome even still those of you that may be in that manner need to humbly remember that it's only the spirit that the faith should be built upon the work of the holy spirit through jesus christ and so let's pray heavenly father i thank you this morning and i, and I challenge all of us today no matter where we're at in our lives journey with you that today in an area of insecurity, in an area maybe where we're weak, or an area that you're prompting us to step out in, I, I pray that you would give us the faith and the courage to do so. That each one of us, Lord God, would surrender our pride, um, our, our fear, our insecurity, and say yes to you. Your word tells us and teaches us that it's those that are willing to be used that will be used. Not necessarily the smartest, not necessarily the most influential or powerful or wealthiest, but it's those that are willing to place their life, their gifts, all that they are in your hands. And I pray that we as individuals and a community would be known by your name and by your power and by your works. Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified. That anybody that comes to know you and that is discipled through the ministry of Dwell Church, that they would point to Jesus and their faith would be built upon Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray over these communion elements this morning that as we receive them today in faith, as we receive the bread which represents your broken body, Lord, that we would remember that it is in your brokenness that we are made whole. And Lord, that as we receive the cup today, we receive the symbol of your blood which cleanses and purifies us. It makes us holy before you. Lord, we do this today in remembrance of you. It is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I um, had a great...
great sense this morning at the end of Josh's sermon um, about something that I felt God was speaking, and then our, our worship leader said it. Um, I feel like um, there's someone in here, maybe more than one someone in here, that God has been really prompting you and asking you to step out in an area of ministry or service, and for one reason or another, maybe it's fear, maybe it's insecurity, maybe it's hurt from previous church experiences, but you've hesitated. And I feel this morning like God is asking you to step out in faith in this area for him to use you. And it may be scary, but I'm going to tell you what I tell myself all the time and tell people all the time that the courage and the boldness of the Holy Spirit doesn't come until we take a step of faith, until we take that step off the diving board. And so as we walk into what he is calling us to do, he emboldens us, but it's as we're walking, not before. And so that's part of what faith is, right? It's putting action to a belief. It's doing something productive. It's, it's moving in a direction. It's not waiting for the, that boldness and that feeling to come before we respond in obedience. But it is responding in obedience knowing that that empowerment is going to come. Knowing that God is going to provide whatever it is that you need to fulfill what, he's going, what, what he promises that he will fulfill. And so whether that is going to your neighbor's house and introducing yourself to them and giving them food or whether that is um, using a, a spiritual gift in this community. Look, the, the, this church is a safe space to practice spiritual gifts, uh, whatever that may be, whether it's hospitality or a gifts of tongues or interpretation, whatever that might be, this is a safe place to do that. If the church is not a safe place to practice and to fail with the purpose of learning, then where is a, a safe place? And so I want to encourage you this morning that whatever God is asking you to do, as you do it, as you take a step, he will provide all that you need. And if this resonates with you this morning, if I'm talking to you, I'd love to, I'd love to talk with you after service. I'm going to ask the worship team to just play this chorus one more time. You're free to go if, if you need to. I'm just going to let them dismiss um, after they close the song, and uh, we will see you guys next week. We love you all.